Welcome to episode 5 of The Transport. This workday could last forever. The Transport by Alex Ames You are listening to The Transport, a sci-fi military action thriller audiobook podcast, written and performed by Alex Ames. The music throughout the podcast is the song The Last True Boss by Kumiku, available on the freemusicarchive.org. Hello and welcome to already the fifth episode. I hope you are still in the game. The next chapters are coming up, but let's see what happened so far. Charles briefs the president of the USA, who is not convinced that the transport of the alien spaceship to the proton collider is such a great idea. Sergeant Cena Washington is convinced by Major Bristol that the transport is better secured than Justin Bieber's next wedding. And our friend Leo is convinced that Eva hides something from him. Let's get into the story. Chapter 13 Sina Sina's feet hurt from running round so much. With the rig size of a football field and eight-foot-high tires, she was either jogging along the side or climbing up and down to get the overview needed to position the single units of the rig, to position the holding frame of the object and steer the various transport modules into the correct spot. Lieutenant Kimmick turned out to be not much of a help, as it was his first assignment ever to a logistics unit. But he had the good grace to keep out of the specialist's way and didn't micromanage the teams. And he managed not to get run over by any of the 310 wheels. They kept him up to date and he dutifully left each hour for the video briefing with Charles Nauman. The rig was built as a modular transport system. Each module consisted of five rows of wheels, eight feet high, three feet wide, one single unit about 20 yards long and seven yards wide. There was no steering wheel, only a computer that processed the course that the master driver had set. A joystick translated any on-the-fly adjustments into individual steering commands for each of the wheels. The transmission system was hydraulic to produce the necessary power. 10 miles per hour was the maximum speed, but for very heavy transports the realistic speed was more around 2 to 5 miles per hour. Too many obstacles lay in the civilized world like towns, bridges, or simply unsuitable surfaces. 
In order to transport an object of the tin can magnitude, the team had connected 25 MMTUs to a giant, multi-wheeled, multi-row in a matrix of five vehicles wide and five vehicles long. It looked as if someone had tied together five long centipedes side by side. Four gasoline power generators, two in front and two in back, made sure that enough hydraulic force was produced to move all wheels and provide enough electricity for the computers and sensors. Two controller units rode between the power generators, looking like trucks with two airport towers on top, a lower one for the pointer and a higher one for the master controller, in this case Cena's perching seat. An armada of connected computers coordinated all synchronized units in their dance to move their load safely. Thousands of data points from wheels and various technical components indicated the current distribution of the load and gave predictions in case the surface changed. All wheels had a steering ability of 45 degrees which allowed them to go into very small turns individually and as a whole. If needed, the whole football field could turn almost on the spot. For most of the rest of the day and part of the evening, Mac and his team installed the prepared holding frame underneath the object. Every five yards an exactly fitting steel frame that formed the cradle. The smooth, frictionless surface of the object made any other type of bearing impossible. Sina, deep in her own preparations, heard Mac running through his inexhaustible list of swear words as some frame elements refused to fit underneath the giant. Everyone knew that one mistake resulted in a crush of equipment and, if things really went bad, dead soldiers. Usually it needed a combination of cradle and MMTU adjustments to bring everything into the correct position. There was no crane that could hold a load of 2,500 metric tons, so the logistics unit had to be creative. Whenever a section of framing had been prepared, Sina's team moved the next MMTU unit into position and a part of the weight was slowly shifted from the static floor frame to the movable platform, each frame exactly positioned optimally onto the static bearings. Kimmick had a short powo at 2100 hours. All right, where are we, Mac? The loading master rubbed his tired eyes. Whoever prepared the cradle frame knew their job. Good fit, no troubles so far. The two hydraulic presses for the frame adjustments are a bit too slow for my liking, but another three hours should do it to completely transfer the load. Sina? All units are functional. The load distribution we see so far is slightly off to our favor by about 50 tons. Maybe the egghead scientists of their time had no better way of calculating. But our readouts don't lie. These safe tons will give us more options on the road later on. Kimmick nodded. The plan stands. Try to be done by midnight. Have one of the each team stand guard and check constantly for any issues while the load is at rest. 
He looked at Sina and Mac. And don't volunteer yourself. I want both of you fresh tomorrow. It will be a long day. Both nodded. The lieutenant was right. They need to be their best tomorrow. The team broke for the night around midnight, the first part of the job done. Sina and Mac had done a last walk around the unit, checking between the MMTUs that were spaced seven feet apart to allow the wheels to steer freely. Two power generators were up and running at 30% capacity to keep the hydraulics under pressure. The controlling computer moved the whole transport by one inch a minute to avoid the wheels breaking into the concrete. After 60 minutes, the whole transport would reverse automatically, repeating the process. The hangar was almost 70 years old and neither Mac nor Sina trust the floor to hold the load indefinitely, so constantly moving wheels were the best precaution. The cook had prepared a late meal in the mess in the makeshift container camp where they had first met. Half of the team found their beds immediately, half accepted the midnight dinner of hot beef stew with bread. Sina sat down first, placing her footray. A moment later, Mac took the seat opposite of her. Sina pulled her tray back and got up to find another space. Mac held out one hand and pressed down her tray. Gorsuch and Gherkin came behind Mac, but he shooed them away. Sergeants only, Mac growled, and Gorsuch raised one hand in mock acceptance. I'll mop up the blood and bone pieces later, he said, and the two privates set out of earshot. Sina sat down again, expecting either an apology from Mac for his earlier behavior or another earful. But the loading master surprised her. Don't you think this operation stinks? he whispered. With all the kitchen and people noises, no one could overhear them. What do you mean? Don't you find it strange that we are running this super-secret show to move the find of the century? You mean Kimmick being a newbie at this? And Colonel Brixby being notably absent. Brixby was the commanding officer of the 2nd Transport Battalion. For such an important mission, they are relying on a zero-experienced junior officer and two non-calm officers, one being a disgraced and recently demoted sergeant. Sina felt her anger flaring up again, but decided not to take the bait. And Mac had a point. She shrugged. But you can argue that we are the real A-team, and Bristol's rangers seem to know what they are doing. Navy SEALs are a bit far from the water to support us. Trigger happy bunch, that's what they are, Mac snorted and pointed over to the next table where Bristol sat with some of his men for the meal. All of them showed an abundance in muscles and lack of smiles. You heard the spook from DC, he's supposed to keep it totally under wraps. But think about it, Mac argued. A lot of first-rate preparations has gone into it. The calculations, the pre-programming of our control units, building the cradle frames, preparing the road, commissioning the MMTUs from all over the world. A lot of heavy lifting in advance by a lot of very able people. Sina thought for a minute. 
I see what you mean. A-class preparation, but only the B-team to execute. I smell trouble, Sina. You want to call it off? How can we? Mac shrugged. We could claim mechanical troubles, delay the takeoff. See who really gets nervous, Sina proposed. They would demote you to the size of a hamster, Mac uttered. That Norman guy was a nervous wreck and he looked pretty preppy, but he must have the highest cloud on the upper levels to be able to establish a no-fly zone for half the US. Call up the cavalry and commanders here. Tomorrow will tell. I have a bad feeling about this. Noted. They continued with their food in silence. Sina looked at Mac. Listen. I'm sorry about the kid. I dream every other night of him. Talking to him, watching him, doing his work. Reliving his death, she said quietly, tears dwelling in her eyes. Mac slammed down his spoon so hard on the tabletop that the noise brought a complete silence and a look from everyone in the room. He slowly got up from his chair and carried his plate over to the rest of the team. Humiliated, Sina left the room, her late-night dinner half-eaten. The last thing she heard was Mac musing, Hell of a thing, moving a spaceship. And worst of all, we got no bragging rights. Sina moved to the designated bunk bed quarter that had seen 60 plus years of inhabitants, it seemed. There was a section marked for females not distinguishing ranks and she decided on an upper bed, patting down the ratty blankets and stone-hard mattresses. The only other female team member was Debbie Sims, a load calculation private first class and max unit. She entered after Sina and inspected the quarter. Not much money in alien spaceship babysitting these days, she remarked. Sina and Sims had never worked together before. Being a woman in this physically demanding job was a rare occurrence. The hydraulic cable connectors between the MMTUs could weigh up to 50 pounds each and the work made no distinction between genders. Where Sina was wiry and strong from the inside, Debbie was squared and muscular, with short red hair. Bad prep only took minutes, most time taken for brushing teeth, and Sina fell onto her bunk bed dead tired. Debbie settled in a few beds down after killing the light. People and machine sounds drifted in through the door and the vents, the mountain alive. Hope the earlier row between Mac and me did not stir up the troops too much? Sina asked into the dark. Rumors are flying. I hope only half of it is true. Debbie gave back from her side of the room. Probably all. If it is any consolation, I... Sarge, I am not your shrink. I just calculate the load and make sure it stays on top. And I really need to sleep. Sina sighed inwardly. I understand, Deb. Good night. Behind the window of the bunk room stretched the empty hangar. 
She imagines the overpowering presence of the black object from outer space, now strapped in its new steel harness in the hangar next door, ready to be moved at first light to its new home. Sina closed her eyes and behind her eyelids lay darkness. Ultimate black that the object sucked from its surrounding. It only takes and never gives. Hi, Alex Ames here. Sorry for the little interruption. This story will continue momentarily. If you like a good thriller, check out my 2020 novel, COVID Trouble. COVID Trouble is a novel in my ongoing troubleshooter series, featuring the corporate troubleshooter Paul Trouble. COVID Trouble takes place in Paris, France after the first lockdown of 2020, just when life seems to normalize again during the worldwide life-threatening pandemic. And France is getting ready for some well-earned summer vacations. Someone is poisoning supermarkets with the virus. Is it a lunatic? Is it a terrorist act? Paul Trouble will find out. A lot of bullets will fly. There are car chases, gunfights, rooms full of dead people, deadly fire traps and many, many, many ways to die. COVID Trouble is available as ebook at most online retailers and as paperback at Amazon and some other e-tailers. Check it out, it's a ride. It's inspired by the current events of that crazy, crazy year 2020. COVID Trouble is the name, Alex Ames, the author. That being said, by the book. And now, let's jump back into the transport. Chapter 14 Herbert Herbert's Monday afternoon and evening went in a blur. Carling had become the supreme commander, and true to form, he had started commanding where commanding had been totally unnecessary. Herbert had to bite his tongue more than once to comply with the wishes. Most of them totally superfluous, as the plan was agreed anyway. Convert as many Legion analytic managers and employees as possible as they needed human bodies to execute tomorrow's plan. By late evening, Herbert was not unhappy. For once, most planned names, especially the direct reports of Carling, had been converted, plus some additional crucial team members they needed to train tonight. The Supreme Commander was not a happy human. He complained about the outstanding converts and the time pressure whenever they crossed off another name. And he complained about the rejects too. Unfortunately, yes, but it had been clear from the beginning that not every human body was able to act as a host. That had been calculated into the plan, but the commander was unhappy anyway. This is a substandard species, I tell you, the supreme commander lamented. 
Hadn't there been any other option? Dogs appear to be much more robust, and they are being served by the humans. It only appears that way. Dogs are mere pets, household items, food. Humans are the domineering species, and the only one highly enough developed to pull off our operation. You know this. Herbert tried once more to talk sense into his leader and to bring his focus back to the important matters. Yeah, but still, their metabolism is crap. I feel fear, I feel nervousness. These people are no heroes, that much I know, pussies. Herbert grudgingly nodded. What else could he do? And proceeded on. Fortunately, all the converts grasped the sensory and neural concepts of the hosts quickly and were able to get to their assigned tasks. The complete group held a late-night meeting in Legion's biggest meeting room, closed doors and pulled shades to see where they stood. A few hardcore, unconverted employees were still around, so they had to be careful. The Supreme Commander called for order. Shut up, y'all. Let's see where we stand, Herbert. Herbert leaned against the doorframe of the meeting room, tired as hell. Fourteen executed conversions, two rejects. You all have your list for tomorrow morning. Five or six more are needed, plus whatever you can manage. The more, the better. Various people in the group nodded. By noon, we must be in position. Contact at the rendezvous point is at 1500 hours. Three hours in the burning desert heat? Isn't that risky? We run into danger of dehydration or a heat stroke, someone asked. It's a compromise, Herbert explained. You will be under camouflage covers, no direct sunlight. And everyone has calculated four bottles of water at disposal, which you will use, please. Drink continuously. We must get into position undetected, and even at noon this will be a risk. There might be flyovers, so we need to be quick in settling in. But soldiers can handle it for these long times. Why can't we? Linny Frampton chimed. She was Carling's administrative assistant, a chubby petite blonde in a floral dress, beloved for her fantastic cookies that she always kept in a jar by her desk and her ferocious curveball she was able to throw as captain of the mixed softball team. You are desk workers that have never been away from air conditioning for more than an hour at a time, Carling barked. Your bodies will be stressed enough after three hours waiting. You must preserve energy and keep concentrating to fight. Surprise is our only strength, don't forget this. That brings us to Smitty. Smitty? was the head biochemist and a former U.S. Army infantry officer, a solid and large man with a square head and short brown hair. The plan counted on his muscle memory and experience with weapons and tactics to lead the assault. He stepped up beside Carling. The attack team will leave in 20 minutes sharp. The bowling alley closes around one o'clock. I will lead the incursion, most of you will wait in the bus. Everyone received a checklist what to pick up from the armory downstairs. Before you leave the building and walk over to the bus, check for any accidental eyes. 
there weren't any other questions, and the group dispersed. Carling motioned to Herbert to stay. I want you to join the training too, the Supreme Commander said, and I decided that you will co-lead the team out into the desert tomorrow. Smitty's host is experienced, but none of us has ever been in a battle. You are the only one with hands-on training for a longer period as a convert, and the community counts on you. But I was to prepare, Herbert started and again remembered who he was talking to. Yes, Supreme Commander. Jay will take your part in tomorrow's convergence. I already talked to him. Thank you. What else could Herbert say? He walked downstairs and gathered the same equipment as the others. Smitty gave him a nod. I appreciate your support. I understand the pressure you feel. Herbert nodded back and swallowed. The outlook of a live-action battle scared him, especially his host. He knew about guns. In preparation of today, he had visited various gun ranges over the years, fired a variety of handguns, long-range guns and semi-automatic weapons. But that had been on the range, not the real thing. They would be up against people who actually fought and killed for a living. But the Supreme Commander had been right. He was the most experienced human host together with Smitty. The one-eyed leading the blind. The building where Legion Analytics ran their business was a converted old-style brick-and-mortar machine factory, the offices in typical loft style. One of the advantages of the former function was the backyard loading ramp, which had been used for shipments way back. The alley between the main building and the low-utility building next door gave a shelter from curious eyes and it fitted the bus just fine. Smitty and Herbert led the colorful crew of armed-to-the-teeth managers and employees towards the loading ramp. Herbert unlocked the gate and rolled it up. A school bus? Smitty stared at the ancient yellow carriage that easily could have been used to carry people to the Washington rallies in the 60s. Herbert looked at him apologetically. This one was the best mode of transportation I could find. And it is the least suspicious. No one stops a school bus. He looked left and right, saw no unauthorized person, stepped down the ramp and opened the front door of the bus. All in, pick a seat. No fighting, boys and girls. The group entered and started stowing away the equipment. Linny Frampton suddenly sang, The wheels on the bus go round and round. Everyone else looked at her and she shrugged. Sorry, gallows humor, I guess. Humans. The trip to the 80s mania bowling alley took 15 minutes. Veracity was a quiet town and traffic was super light on any given weeknight. The establishment screamed its name with Miami Vice-style neon into the night and the ordinary late-night supermarket beside it had nothing to contribute. Smitty, who sat right behind the bus driving Herbert, cursed. Damn it, is that an all-night shop? It is past twelve now and the lights are on, of course it is. Herbert sounded stressed. 
After years of operational solitude, he had a hard time getting into the sudden onslaught of social collaboration. That is not good, Herbert. Police are going to come around to get their coffee. They might overhear us or notice the bus. Smitty's reasoning had connected himself with his host's memory of earthly life and had come up to the conclusion. I did two nights of stakeout, Smitty. There hadn't been a single police car around. They are using the Italian bodega on Main Street, closer to the station and better coffee, Herbert explained. I did my prep. Sorry to have doubted you, Smitty apologized, but still glanced suspiciously over to the store's entrance. Everyone's a critic, Herbert grimaced, and drove on to the bowling alley's parking lot, around the low building to the back side, where four cars were parked. They checked the interiors. All four cars sat empty, no waiting husbands or smoking employees. Don't assume that four cars mean four individuals. Sometimes the waitresses get picked up by husbands or friends, Herbert alerted his companions. I didn't, Smitty replied. Most of you, sit down tight. Linny, you take the post outside the back door. Johnson, you are with us for the front door. Herbert felt the tension within Smitty building up. They waited a minute to give Linny time to get into position. Smitty glanced at his watch. Five to one, let's hit it. Smitty wore his Glock on the holster and a Mac-10 machine pistol under the jacket, slung over his right hand. Herbert only carried a Glock stuck behind his belt on his back out of view. They expected a handful of staff members and maybe one or the other unlucky patron. The music was already off, a good sign that regular business hours indeed were over. The two waitresses, wearing shrill, colorful skirts and blouses, sat on the corner of the bar counting their tips. The bartender was putting away glasses from the dishwasher. The twenty lanes were deserted. The house technician was sorting bowling balls and rent checks on the ball return. That only left the owner unaccounted for. In theory. Herbert stiffened and tried not to look too nervous. Gentlemen, we are closed already, the bartender said. Sorry. Twenty yards to the bar. Herbert put up a nervous smile. No, we are not here for a drink. We've had an accident and I think the car of your boss has been damaged by us. Fifteen yards. The blue pickup? The bartender looked worried. Not sure if it's blue, too dark, but a pickup, all right. Five yards. That will make his effing day, one of the waitresses said without stopping her money count while the bartender pressed a button on an intercom device. Tom, can you come down, please? Something with your car, some damage. Ten seconds later, a man whom Herbert knew to be the owner came walking fast through a back room door. What's with my car? He looked more annoyed than angry. When he was five steps away, Smitty revealed his Mac and shot the man with a three-bullet burst. Smitty's muscle memory still served him well as the first bullet hit the owner in the stomach, the second got his neck and the last one went through his head, a spectacle of blood spraying brine matter and a falling body. 
The waitresses were still taking the breath to scream when the left one was hit by Smitty's second salvo, her arms flailing, dollar notes raining over the bar counter. Herbert fumbled with his own gun, trying not to shoot himself in the ass. When he had it in his hand and turned the safety off, the second waitress was screaming like a banshee, the blood spray of a colleague all over her, getting off the bar stool. And the bartender had the good plan to drop out of view. Barman! Smitty shouted to Herbert and turned to take care of the technician. Herbert took aim at the second waitress and shot her in the back while she was bolting towards the office tract. She fell forward, a huge bloody spot on her back, screams mixing with a gurgle. Then Herbert moved around the bar. The barman stood up and threw a cola bottle at him, a lemon knife in his other hand. The bottle grazed Herbert's left shoulder. Herbert shot but missed. The barman came at him, the knife held up high. Herbert shot again, aimed at the body center. Another miss! He was no gun hero. This much was clear. The bartender was clever, and Herbert focused to deflect the small lemon knife with his free left hand and received a fist against his breastbone in return. And then the bartender was past him, not a fighter but a runner, towards the door in large steps, ducking his head. The second waitress's gurgle turned into a scream again. She was pulling herself slowly through her own blood, inching towards the wall. Herbert heard Smitty's Mac again, this time on fully automatic, and saw in his peripheral vision that the technician was stopped in his attempt to flee down to the bowling alley, disrupted by an endless stream of bullets that ripped his body open, Smitty steadying his guns with both hands. The dead body's momentum slid him a few yards on the smooth surface and his head threw a strike. The bartender slammed open the door to the lobby in full run into the gun of the waiting Johnson. His shotgun roared once and a headless barman tumbled backwards into the main room, blood pumping from the neck wound. The second waitress now screamed at the top of her lungs. It was unconceivable where she found the strength. Johnson came in and stared at the mess he had caused. Ooh, I think I'm going to be sick. The barman's body still pumped blood from the gaping head hole, spreading a giant dark red pool. Johnson shot once more at the general direction of the heart and the body stopped moving and spilling. Herbert ran back to the bar, over to the second waitress and shot her in the head. It stopped the screaming. The silence was deafening. Hope no one has heard the shots, Smitty remarked from the alleys where he checked the technician. Herbert checked the back door and the restrooms and made his way into the back office. No one else around, they were clear. Good job, Smitty said. I'll open the back door for the team. Don't forget to call out for Linny or you'll lose your head, Herbert called after him, light-headed and sick at the same time from the adrenaline overload and the smell of blood. They found some tablecloths and put them over the dead bodies and bloody legs. Smitty distributed the team. Each fighter got an alley. All right, let's start with the simple stuff. Everyone take your AR-15. Don't worry about loading it. We start with the basic positioning first. Smitty ran through the basic drills of holding, aiming, reloading or without ammunition. 
When they loaded bullets to the magazines, the women complained that their nails got ruined by the exercise. All right, safety off. From now on, you point your gun straight at nowhere else, or you end up shooting each other. Pick a target on the 80s one-head wonder mural. Any target, fire and ready. Linny threw in a chewing gum and chimed from the floor, the AR-15 looking huge alongside her petite body. Even at Rick Astley? Shut up and shoot, Linny. Linny gave Smitty a stare, popped a chewing gum bubble at him. A few minutes later, the inside of the bowling alley was filled with shots and gun smoke. This is it for this week's edition of The Transport, the sci-fi action thriller written and performed by Alex Ames. If you liked what you just heard, leave a comment in whatever platform you downloaded or listened to the podcast. If there are stars, star me, help me spread the good. And again, my shameless self-promoting plug. If you liked it so far and can't bear the suspense, buy the book. If you can bear the suspense, buy the book. And another shameless self-promotion. If you liked what you heard and think that many of your potential customers might be listening to this podcast too, feel free to contact me at alex.ames.writing at gmail.com or send me a private message on Twitter or Instagram at Alex Ames writing one word. The middle section of this podcast could be reserved for you. And that's it, for real. Wherever you are, whoever you are, thank you, take care, I hear you next time. This is Alex Ames, this was The Transport, over and out. <laughs>